Welcome to the Inquisitive Vet Podcast. This is Simon speaking, and today we're going to be talking about exotic oncology with Dr. Jennifer Graham. Jennifer is a diplomat of the American College of Zoological Medicine and a diplomat of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners in both avian medicine and exotic companion mammals. She is currently an Associate Professor of Zoological Companion Animal Medicine at Tufts Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. She is also the editor for the books The 5-Minute Avian Consult and Exotic Animal Emergency Medicine. In this episode, we are going to be talking about ferret lymphoma, avian squamous cell carcinoma, and radiation therapy for our rabbit thymoma cases. So, without further ado, hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Jennifer Graham. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. That's good. So today we're going to be talking about exotic oncology, uh, which is a relatively new field of medicine. Um, But before we do that, Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about how you became an exotic vet? Sure. Yeah. When I was a kid, I grew up on a little hobby farm and ended up doing a lot of wildlife rehabilitation um, with my mom and all during undergrad, ended up still doing some wildlife rehab, spent a lot of time around animals, obviously. And once I got into vet school, I was sitting in class all day and it was really sad and I was really bored and I wanted to work with more animals. And it turned out that uh, where I went to veterinary school at Auburn University, they have a raptor rehab program, the Southeastern Raptor Rehabilitation Center. And I ended up volunteering there. And they end up having students take over as medical directors during third year if they're interested. So I ended up doing that. I had a really interesting case of an owl that had an ocular lesion. And we ended up doing Um, an implant essentially to try to take up space in the bird's head because they can be so asymmetric if they their eyes take up so much space in the head and I ended up writing that paper up um, and going to present that at a couple of conferences and at one of the conferences it turns out um, Cheryl Greenacre was there she introduced me and she said oh by the way we're going to be having an exotic internship at UGA are you interested and so it just sort of happened that I was interested in Raptor medicine had been doing a lot of birds, and with the wildlife background, I thought I might want to give it a try, especially because during my preceptorship, I was doing a little bit of vaccine clinics with dogs and cats and heartworm prevention, and honestly, I was getting a little bored, and that was before graduation. So I was like, "Mm, maybe I'll I'll try to go a different route. So it worked out. Great. That's um, that's really cool that you um, were writing, you wrote a paper before you even finished. I don't know if that's a normal thing or whether just luck has it that you just happen to have a some material to write. <laughs> yeah, sometimes those those cool cases don't come along that often, but especially with as a student, there's a lot of opportunities for um, different organizations that have meetings for student manuscript competitions. And I really advise students that are interested in getting in the field to take advantage of those opportunities. That's really how you get your name out there more quickly and really make yourself more appealing for things like internship and residency programs. Sure. And just to elaborate a little bit further, um, can I ask, what was one pivotal decision um, during your career that you think really made a big difference? Well, I think one of the more recent um, changes was just leaving a more of a private practice setting and going into academia. I've been at Tufts since 2012, so it's been um, a, a quite a while now. But really, 
going from a situation where I was in practice all of the time and not really able to focus on other things, and then in an academic environment where I, I do a lot of clinical work and I do see a lot of cases, but also I'm able to focus time on research and writing um, and, and the teaching part of things. And so for me, it's been a much better fit. I feel much more professionally fulfilled. And honestly, I was just getting a little bit burned out in a situation where it was just case after case after case, and I wasn't able to really, ha- you know, have a lot of time to spend on those more complex cases. So for me, that was a, a big decision that I think really helped me be able to expand the types of things I could do. Oh, I can imagine. So now we're just going to segue on to what we were going to talk about today, exotic oncology. I thought if we could get the ball rolling by actually talking about lymphoma in ferrets, which is obviously something that's quite common. Um, And so maybe if we could start, how does lymphoma in ferrets typically present? Well, unfortunately with lymphoma, there's not really one uh, universal presenting complaint. And a lot of the cases I've seen have had a history of weight loss, potentially lethargy. Depending on the type of lymphoma, you can have a, a very acute onset. So if there's more of a mediastinal lymphoma, the animals may present an acute respiratory distress without really having any other signs at all. I've seen some ferrets come in with abdominal distension, some that are paretic. Um, so really, uh, there's a lot of different ways they present. But generally, when there is a lymphoma case, they do not feel well at all. So Basically, it's a ferret that ain't doing right. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of other things that can cause that, uh, but generally, um, they'll they'll ha- they can have GI signs, respiratory signs, neuro signs, um, and then sometimes we just find it incidentally. We're working them up for other things like insulinoma or adrenal disease. It's very common that we find concurrent lymphoma with other presentations. Okay, so do you find that you start increasing your suspicion of that disease more during the actual workup than during the initial uh, consult where you're asking your, you know, your general questions as well as uh, doing your examination? I think for sure. If there's if there's hallmark signs, you know, for example, if there's significant peripheral lymphadenopathy, if there's clearly, you know, a, a huge liver spleen sort of thing, I might be more suspicious. But a lot of times it will arise as a differential more during the workup process. Mm-hmm. And so if we can go on to that, what is your diagnostic approach for these cases? Well, for the the general ferret that comes in, I typically do like to get uh, baseline blood work, especially complete blood count and chemistry panel. And a lot of times that will help us know about other concurrent issues, um, renal disease, for example, um, and with uh, imaging, it's, it is helpful. I feel like radiographs, especially baseline, they're not always going to be helpful in particular for lymphoma, um, but they may be if there's changes within the thorax, if there's obvious lymph node changes or organ changes. Really, I think where you get to the best um, chance of diagnosing is once you start with ultrasound and sampling, because really that's how you get the more definitive diagnosis is by sample collection. And that's really when we get to the stage of being better able to diagnose. Could you tell me or elaborate a little bit more on the sort of ultrasound findings that you normally see? Yeah, so definitely... I focus a lot on the uh, the liver and the spleen. Um, kidneys can also be important, but just looking at the echo texture of the organ is very helpful. And a lot of times with ferrets, they can have splenomegaly normally. And if they have a homogenous uh, uniform appearance to the spleen, I'm less likely to think about lymphoma. But if I'm seeing more of like a Swiss cheese sort of look, um, and particularly if there's a lot of lymph node enlargement, I'm going to be more 
are suspicious of lymphoma. Um, so those are those are things I may look for. A lot of times the owners will describe the animal as gaining weight, and really it's a full abdomen, but they may have overall muscle wasting. So a lot of times the full abdomen is more because they've got organomegaly, lymphadenopathy, and it's just taking up more space. And so then once we put a probe on them, we're able to, to really characterize uh, whether or not that's a fat sort of appearance versus um, pathology from the lymphoma. You said that you um, will sometimes uh, take your you know, ultrasound guided finetal and it'll aspirates. Do you worry about bleeding um, when that happens? Well, I would say that in terms of evaluating clotting, it's difficult if you don't have an, another, like a normal ferret to go with. A lot of times what I do is in the initial stages, even before I get to that point, I'm doing routine blood work. So I would say it's more of um, almost like a, a buccal mucosal bleeding. If they have any sort of um, hint at all of problems clotting with routine blood draws, then that's going to make me concerned. But really, um, one of the other things I try to look at is if I can get my complete blood count results prior to any sort of acid and especially looking at platelet count, that's going to give us more information. If there's a lot of derangements in the complete blood count, then I'm going to be a lot more nervous about doing aspirates. And that may dictate what I aspirate. So especially with color flow, we can evaluate vascularity of organs. And if we're aspirating lymph nodes, for example, not as much of a concern for hemorrhage. We worry a lot more with things like um, liver aspirates. And so depending on the, the case um, and how the ultrasound looks, we may be aspirating different areas, but I tend to lean towards less vascular organs if I have concerns about uh, coagulopathy. Okay, sure. And just quickly, I know that lymphocytic leukemia is probably less, a lot less common, but um, if you do see suggestive signs of that on the blood work, uh, do you go to um, bone marrow aspirates? Yeah, we, we do recommend bone marrow aspirates, and I would say that um, I don't always have clients that go down that road. So that's um, there are sometimes where we're guessing as to what could be going on in the bone marrow based on looking at the blood count. Um, I don't always have owners go that route, but I certainly do recommend it to get full information. You really can't effectively stage if it's in the bone marrow without sampling that area. So Sure. And just with that, when you're talking about staging, how do you grade and stage lymphoma in ferrets? Well, it's very, it's it's essentially um, the same guidelines established by um, World Health Organization in terms of um, what extent the disease is present. And so when we're looking at grading, we're going to be looking at um, really more of a histologic description of the type of disease that's present and knowing what type of architecture, what cell is there. If it's a small cell, large cell, it gives us a little bit more information about the behavior of how that uh, neoplasia may go. And then also just knowing location. And that's where our imaging really comes in, looking at, you know, does it look like it's just discrete within an organ? Could it be within the GI? Um, is it on both sides of the diaphragm? Could it be in the bone marrow? Um, those are all important things that um, we're going to use in terms of characterizing it. And in terms of phenotyping, um, phenotyping is recommended. But again, I would say it's it's similar to bone marrow in ferrets where I feel like it's not always done. And we're at the point right now where we can't really, um, we're basing a lot of things off of um, dog and cat medicine. There hasn't really been a great um, way to determine, um, you know, prognosis, expected response to different drugs with phenotyping in ferrets. Um, but it is something um, as time goes on, I think we'll be doing more of that. Okay, sure. So is, is there a benefit of doing it at this stage? Um, I mean, should vets be recommending that for their clients or 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it, and it has been validated in ferrets. And so I think if you have a motivated client, absolutely. The more information you have about cell of origin, the better you can pick a, a good chemotherapy protocol. Great. Um, for our newer vets um, that are on here that are only just starting, uh, can you talk to us about how you actually manage your clients and also when you get the diagnosis, how you go about talking to the client when you you know tell them that their ferret has cancer of some sort? Well, a lot of times um, just the topic of cancer can be very upsetting and and I can't tell you how many times a client has lost a loved one or is dealing with cancer themselves. And so there's a lot of emotions that go along with that discussion. And so when I'm initially talking with the client, it really depends on their response and what their experiences have been. Sometimes they are so overwhelmed um, that I feel like trying to get everything down in writing so that they can look at it, process, and revisit it. They may not be ready in the room if, if there's just, um, you know, kind of too much coming at them at once. Um, I let them know that one of the frustrating things about exotic animals is we don't always know um, we can't say, well, what exactly, how long will my ferret live with this treatment or that treatment? And so the way that we go oftentimes depends on the the owner, their financial um, uh, situation, because obviously if they can't buy shoes for their kids, they're not going to be doing full lymphoma treatments on their ferret. Um, so that's a big part of the decision-making process is um, the client, um, their bond with that animal, also the age of the animal and concurrent disease. If you've got a, a ferret that has fulminant heart disease and maybe renal insufficiency, they are not a good candidate for more aggressive therapy. Uh, so really, it depends a lot on the presentation of the case and what other disease uh, may be present. Uh, the other thing I think is very important for veterinarians to do is just because you can do something, don't think you have to do it. Just because you can treat an animal doesn't mean you should. You need to weigh in with the clients and see what's best for them and have a um, really come to a conclusion together. And it's it's okay to, you know, if the owner really is leaning towards things like euthanasia, I think it's our job to support them in whatever decision they make. And obviously we, you know, ultimately we don't want the animal to suffer and it, and it has to be something that's right for, um, for everyone involved. Thanks for that. I was going to ask you next about treatment options. When you do see, what, one or two or even three diseases, how do you prioritize yeah, the, when we're prioritizing, it's it's part of just looking at how the disease would naturally progress. And with things like adrenal disease, honestly, most ferrets have it. Most ferrets can be clinically stable for quite some time. So unless there's really, you know, bone marrow derangements or prostatic changes, for example, that's going to be a lot lower on the list. When we see things like insulinoma, the ferrets have to have a, you know, a glucose that's adequate to survive. And so that's going to be more of an emergent thing. You have to get them stable from that end. Um, but really, lymphoma tends to prioritize, be on the higher priority list because it does tend to aggress, uh, be more aggressive and can affect quality of life more quickly. And so really, it, it depending on what sorts of disease are present, if, if you do have a suspicion of neoplasia, that's uh, particularly with lymphoma, that may uh, jump to the top of the list pretty quickly. And so then on from that, I just wanted to know uh, what lymphoma treatment options that you offer your clients, um, but also in the concepts that you know, these ferrets are not the easiest um, animals to administer medications to. Um, and also with the fact that there are many of the chemotherapy protocols out there, there's uh, limited um, comparison studies that have been done. 
Um, well, I'm fortunate that we have an oncology service, and so generally we are working with the oncologist in terms of deciding the best treatment plan, but we have the option to do things like chemotherapy, um, radiation therapy, um, so we work with the medical and radiation oncologist. But yeah, it, it can be really confusing, particularly when you haven't seen a lot of these cases, and I, and I feel like it's confusing also with dogs and cats. How do you decide which protocol to use? And we actually are just getting ready to publish a paper um, where we looked at a retrospective of lymphoma in ferrets, and we compiled, I think it was about 44 cases between Tufts, and then also we worked with um, Natalie Antonoff at Gulf Coast because she's also managed a lot of lymphoma cases. We, we mainly wanted to compile data, and quite honestly, our goal was we did want to compare the different protocols to look at outcome. Um, but part of the frustration, which we'll probably get to a little bit later, is just the lack of a database a centralized database looking at these cases and outcome with different treatments. And a lot of times we're looking at a case report here or there, and it's very hard to come up with, um, you know, kind of the bottom line information. I would say from the from the data that we've put together, uh, for sure, ferrets that are treated with some sort of protocol, um, I do feel pretty strongly that survival time is longer than if you don't do anything. Um, one of the things that we did find is that even with palliative treatment like prednisolone alone, that still um, did seem to uh, prolong life. So depending on the situation, even if an owner can only do things like pred, I absolutely think it's worth trying. And, and you have to be careful about concurrent heart disease or renal disease, et cetera. Um, but it is certainly a situation where if the owner is able to treat, I, I do move forward. Um, in terms of treatment of choice, it, it really comes down to clinician, clinician preference and experience. And I would say that based on what we know in, um, you know, canine feline type medicine, I do suspect that things like modified COP protocols probably do uh, have longer survival. The problem is vascular access. And with ferrets, their vessels are pretty small um, and trying to repeatedly get IV access, I personally find challenging to do. And especially with some of the drugs we're using, if they are extravascular, that could be problematic. And so for me, I do tend to lean towards, um, there is a no IV protocol that was started at Tufts um, when Jorg Meyer was here. And the protocol does not require IV access um, other than getting blood. You have to check CBCs routinely. Um, but I do feel that I've had some some very good outcomes with that. Um, now, um, talking with Natalie Antonoff, who does a lot of oncology as well, she prefers doing modified COP protocols and, and does not seem to think that the vascular access is as, as big of a problem. And so I think it does come down to preference. I have had cases where um, we've placed vascular access ports, which is always an option. But realistically, especially with smaller ferrets, even with a port, you may not have a working port. And so there's all kinds of things that could come up during the treatment that could be problematic. Um, and I would say ultimately from the, the study that we uh, looked at, looking at this number of ferrets, quite honestly, we were not able to come to a conclusion in terms of which protocol was the best. And, and that's mainly because the lack of follow-up and knowing for sure the date of death on those cases, it really complicated the ability to make an overall comparison. But I would say that um, 
it, it did seem that regardless of what protocol was used, uh, there definitely was increased survival when chemotherapy was involved in some way. And so I do recommend it. It just depends on what to what extent owners are able to go. And quite honestly, with, with some of the more involved protocols, whether it be you know, IV or the COP protocol, you do have to have frequent monitoring and you have to look at that CBC before you give them the next treatment. And if you don't have owners that are able to come in, you know, for example, every couple of weeks, it makes it much more difficult to do treatments like that. So again, it really does depend on the owner. And if they can't do that monitoring that is essential, um, then I I likely will not recommend going down that road um, because we see a lot of cases that may have complications along the way and we have to modify things based on how the patient's doing. Okay. I have a few questions about that. The first one was, what sort of uh, prednisolone doses are you talking about in terms of to cause immune suppression? Well, in terms of uh, prednisolone, and we use, and I would say of all the drugs we use in ferrets, that's probably one of the ones that we tend to use um, quite commonly. And I've seen sadly, I've seen quite a few cases with lymphoma that did have insulinoma that we were managing concurrently with prednisolone. And my preference when I'm using drugs like that, I really try to use the lowest dose that I can to manage the disease process uh, to give room to, to go up because invariably they do become refractory. You have to go up on your dose. And when I'm first treating them, um, if I'm dealing with something like insulinoma and I suspect there could be concurrent lymphoma, I typically go pretty low. Like I usually do do a half mig per kg um, Q12 on that. And if I do have more of a case where we've got, um, you know, a, a more aggressive form, we, we definitely may go higher on the PRED. But especially the, the longer we're going, the higher dose that we go, um, we really do start to see more in the way of side effects. Um, and really, especially once you're up at like a two mig per kg Q12, going much higher than that makes me really nervous. And so I do mm. try to start lower so I have room to, to move up. Okay. Wow, that's really high. My second question was actually with the vascular ports. I've actually never heard of that. Um, how do you keep those in without the ferrets, you know, ripping them out and things like that? So with the vascular access ports, they are actually um, placed into the jugular vein and the port is implanted underneath the skin. And so then you're injecting through the port, but you're going through the skin. And so then there's not an external area where the ferret could get it out. And a lot of times we do have to do bandages and things like that, um, but that's going to be much more practical. You certainly can't maintain IV access with a peripheral catheter um, for a, tr a treatment protocol like you could a, a vascular access port. And so really, um, those that's a situation where if you do have to sample or treat frequently, it may make things easier. And those um, vascular access port, sometimes people just call them VAPs, they've been used in a lot of different exotic species, even in snakes, if you can believe it. So, oh, wow. I've, so I've, I've definitely yeah. never heard of this, but this is really cool. <laughs> so I had a question about these repeated, I assume that you're repeatedly anesthetizing these ferrets when you're doing these COP protocols. How do they manage just from your experience? Well, I do feel like we do have a lot of different animals that may come in for repeat. Um, and, and honestly, I would say rarely would I be completely anesthetizing. I may be sedating. And a lot of times the, the animals tend to do quite well. And I would tell you, I'd, it's certainly much less stressful to have a ferret that's sedate versus trying to put a, put a catheter in and a ferret that's not, as you can imagine. Um, but we do have to be careful with our, 
our drugs or our anesthetics, if their blood pressure drops, then it may be harder to get vascular access as well. And so I really do feel like using more of a sedation protocol versus full anesthesia, you'll have better success. But we do have animals that come in pretty frequently for sedations and do quite well. And really, for most of the protocols, the most frequent you'd be treating them would be every week. Usually it's every other week. Um, so it's not it's not even something that's going to be daily, which a lot of times owners uh, don't understand, you know, they're, they're thinking of, oh, I have to get this daily treatment for my ferret. A lot of times the treatments that are given daily can be given orally. Um, so when we're talking about more invasive um, vascular access, it's not, at, at, you know, it's, it's not like every one to two weeks isn't that often for a ferret, but it is, it's, it's doable. Okay. And can I ask what sedation you would normally use for something like this? It really just depends on the case and how they're responding. A lot of times we may use uh, drugs like um, midazolam, for example, that works pretty well. And then um, opioid type type drugs, buprenorphine, butorphanol. Um, we do tend to be more cautious with um, things like dexmedetomidine, things that may drop the blood pressure significantly. And nowadays, we're actually using a lot more in the way of things like alfaxalone, just because it's such a short-acting drug that, that can be used. So there's a lot of different uh, protocols that could be tried. Okay, great. And could you um, talk about some of the side effects um, that you do see when you're running these chemotherapy protocols and how you manage the risks? I would say one of the more common things we've seen has been um, knocking out the white cells and having an animal that we're more uh, worried about uh, being prone to infection. And so we're really looking at the neutrophils very closely. And before we administer chemotherapies, we get um, CBC and we're able to just get a stat CBC to, to be able to evaluate that before we treat. And I would say there's a percentage of cases I've seen, and, and maybe it's not even 50%, but they will develop a neutropenia that then we delay treatment for a week. And we never want to push the treatment if we don't think the animal can handle it. Sometimes, depending on what the neutrophils are doing, we may add concurrent antibiotics. One of the other things I tend to see quite a bit is um, liver effects. And so I have worked with our oncologists on cases if, if we do see hepatic side effects, changing the protocol around because there are some ferrets that don't do well with certain drugs. Um, but again, it's really that monitoring. You won't know without uh, doing blood work. And so really, that's an important part of the treatment plan as well as, as being able to decide whether or not they're tolerating the drugs. Um, I read in the literature, some they mentioned something about um, you know, true oncological emergencies where you're actually giving them intravenous antibiotics and things like that. Have you ever had to do that? And if so, how do you make the decision to treat I would say, I, I'm trying to think back. I don't think I've had a case where we've had to do that, but it certainly is possible. It's something I talk to owners about. And in part, whether or not we do that depends on the overall case. Because if we feel like it's sort of an end-stage terminal situation that the animal has other comorbidities and may not recover, I would be less inclined to push for that. Whereas if I see a case where I, I do feel like it's just a temporary setback, I would be more inclined. I've been amazed with how these cases, even with fairly low neutrophil counts, are still up and running around and acting great. And when I've talked to our oncologists, I'm 
kind of, I, I'm looking at the blood work and I'm kind of freaking out. Like, should we hospitalize them? I'm, I'm really worried. And they'll say, well, no, if, you know, if they're acting okay, we may want to treat with antibiotics, but monitor the case, treat the patient, not the numbers. Um, so if you have a case that's otherwise acting pretty good, then you may not have to do the aggressive supportive care versus if you've got a case that's really dumpy, they're not eating, they're getting dehydrated. If you don't treat those cases more aggressively, they're going to tank. So it really depends on the, um, you know, how the animal's feeling uh, first and foremost. Okay. And what antibiotics do you normally reach for uh, when you do see neutropenia? It really depends on the situation. And, and if I'm just using a, you know, just a generic antibiotic, I have to say, honestly, I use a lot of amoxicillin mainly because I don't know why ferrets like bubblegum flavor, but they do, and um, or banana or whatever it is. And so I find that a lot of the different antibiotics, you know, every every protocol will in a ferret says, give them metronidazole for GI stuff. They hate metronidazole so much. And trying to get it into them is just such a miserable struggle. And a lot of times owners feel like, you know, if I'm making my patient and making my pet this miserable every day, is it even worth it? So I try to go with things that will be more palatable, potentially even compounding. And if I need to use more broad spectrum, like let's say I needed to use something like a fluoroquinolone and, you know, a cephalosporin type drug, if they're not keen on the flavor, I do try to work with compounding pharmacists to try to make it the most pleasant experience possible. They do have to go through a lot. So I certainly don't want them miserable with the medications they're taking as well. I really like that answer because it's like not not what I thought you were going to say and also <laughs> really realistic. So great. <laughs> Can I ask a more general question now and just um, how do you guard against cachexia? It's inevitable. And so one of the things that makes the biggest difference in my, um, my impression is that the clients, the clients make the biggest difference in terms of how they're nutritionally supporting these animals. And you can't just start a ferret on a chemotherapy protocol and let them just sit around and see what happens. Um, most of the time, we're really trying to do additional nutritional support, and these animals do need to have a good plane of nutrition. And ferrets anyway, they really do need um, like higher fat protein diets, lower carbs. And especially when we're looking at treatment of um, oncology cases, that also does seem to be beneficial across the board to, to go with lower carbohydrate type things. And with ferrets, they're the perfect, um, perfect, uh, case for that because that's their natural, that would be their natural, um, gut needs anyway. Um, sometimes, um, We'll have owners do supplemental feeding. In rare cases, we may need to do things like feeding tubes, but I feel like if it gets to that point, we really have to look at overall quality of life for that patient. Um, things Sometimes people will supplement with fatty acids, uh, and definitely we try to try to prevent other things that might stress their immune system at the same time, like vaccines. Um, and really, Unfortunately, cachexia is inevitable, um, but I feel like if we can more aggressively support them from a nutritional standpoint and do the supplemental feeding, it's helpful. And then also realizing with ferrets, their GI tract is so exquisitely sensitive in terms of having, um, you know, ulceration, nausea, those sorts of things. So concurrent drugs, Zofran, things to help with nausea, things to help with GI protection are very important to help because just that I feel like the nausea alone is a big reason why these animals are not eating. So if they're showing signs of bruxism or pawing at the face, hypersalivation, things that could indicate GI upset, um, really making the GI tract happy is the way to go in terms of making sure they're still eating and staying supported. Can I ask what um, nutritional supplement uh, that you like to use at your clinic? 
Well, um, I'm just because I'm lazy and I don't like to make things up myself, I like to use some of the commercially available type products. So for example, um, Oxbow has a product called Carnivore Care. It's an egg-based product that was developed for use in ferrets. I, I don't like the smell that much, but the ferrets <laughs> seem to like it a lot. Um, Lefebvre makes some um, supportive care products as well. So a lot of times I tend to go with those, um, the commercially available that are geared more towards ferrets. But you can also base it similarly to cats. So things like the MaxCal, um, AD, it's, it's a little higher in fat, so I don't want to do that longer term. But there's, you know, the higher calorie um, canned type diets that are made for um, cats can also be used. Keeping in mind that ferrets tend to imprint on their food at a very young age based on smell. And so trying to get them to take some of these things can be challenging. And so then at home, a lot of times owners are willing to do different homemade diets. And there's different recipes out there for ferrets. Um, you've probably heard of things like duck soup um, that have a mixture of different things that owners yes. do. Um, the main thing I emphasize is we want to really try to make it low carb. And so some of those recipes add like, you know, a tube of NutriCal or something like that. And I do not recommend going that route for a variety of reasons. And so really trying to focus on the higher protein, fat, low carb um, sort of recipes are helpful. Great. Do you mind also um, commenting on afterwards when you have ferrets that are in remission, in terms of vaccinations, is it a complete never vaccinate that ferret again? Um, once we have a diagnosis of lymphoma, I never vaccinate. Yeah, I feel like as it is, we over vaccinate. And especially if you've got an indoor ferret that's not, you know, best friends with a bat or something like that, really, the risk would be so low. And that immune system is just it can't handle um, it just it can't handle that and be healthy. So I, I don't vaccinate. Okay, now I'm going to make a big segue and switch over now to talking about squamous cell carcinoma in cytosines. So I was wondering if you can just talk about what are the sort of typical presentations that you do see um, squamous cell carcinoma in your parrot species? Well, especially if there's some sort of area that's undergone repeated trauma, um, any type that anytime there's a chronic inflammatory process, we may have neoplastic transformation of cells. So especially if there's some sort of um, non-healing wound that tends to um, just, it doesn't follow the typical progression in terms of healing. Um, those are cases I would want to biopsy. Um, Uropygial glands tend to be a common area where squames can develop. And in part um, with hypovitaminosis A and squamous metaplasia, that, that change in the integument is, um, will predispose eventually to neoplastic transformation. And so the oral cavity roof of the mouth um, around the coanal region is another common place that we may see it. So if there is some sort of unexplainable wound that is chronic and recurring, you want to be more suspicious about that. So the actual um, neoplastic process actually doesn't develop until after the chronic, the wound's been there for a while, or was it always there to begin with? Uh, it well for the ones where we see more of a chronic history of uh, you know especially if there's mutilation going on um, the changes the neoplastic transformation does not happen until after the fact but we see cases where we have spontaneous um, squamous cell carcinoma and no history of underlying trauma but I think about it sort of like you know the cats with the white ears that get the sun damage that are prone to development of neoplasia I do suspect in some of these situations there may be some sort of inciting event that we're not aware of and certainly there may be some sort of genetic predisposition as well um, but when we um, we we do tend to 
see it more in animals that have um, a poor nutritional history, um, insufficient vitamin A. Those are things where I would be more suspicious of it. Can I ask how hypovitamosis A, how does, what is the association between that and squamous cell carcinomas? Well, with, with the hypovitaminous hypovitaminosis, I can't say it, A, it, it changes the character of the, um, the, the cells themselves. And so when squamous metaplasia happens, it's not normal cells. It's basically like cells stacking up on one another. It affects the overall ability, even for the body to have normal defense mechanisms to things like bacteria. And actually, one of the common ways we may see this present is birds that have um, chronic sinusitis, they'll have recurrent um, sinus infections. And a lot of times veterinarians may be culturing, finding some organism, putting them on antibiotics. That cycle repeats over and over. And over time, those are the cases that may be more at risk for developing neoplasia. And so anytime we're seeing something like that, it's important to look at a lot of you know, the underlying things that could be contributing. And if that animal's not on a good nutritional plane, uh, diet conversion is going to be helpful. Um, and and again, I would say right now, we can't say definitively for this, this is something we strongly suspect. And I would say I've certainly seen it clinically. Um, but based on information in humans as well, it certainly makes sense that this could happen. Just for people around the world, um, and I don't know what it's like in America. Can you tell us what is the you know, recommended commercial diet for birds um, over there? It really it it varies depending on the species of bird. And you know, in an in an ideal situation, having a lot of healthy fruits and vegetables, and really emphasizing the vegetables is great. But what I find is that most people are very busy and it's hard for them to take the time to really balance out the diet. And if they're not working with a nutritionist, which most of them are not, then we really have to be careful because when we're offering those things, um, and especially like I have an Amazon parrot, and if my Amazon could eat pasta all day, he would, um, they'll be picking out the things that taste better. So they may be picking out things like grape and corn and apple, things that are not nutritionally complete. And so when we have situations where um, an owner cannot be very vigilant about balancing a diet, formulated pelleted diets are made to be complete nutrition. And certainly they're not as um, exciting and enriching enriching just sitting in a bowl, but there's ways that we can incorporate into foraging, puzzle toys, other types of things to make them do more natural foraging behaviors. Um, certainly, we, we suspect species like eclectus do need a lot more in the way of fresh fruits and vegetables compared to some of the other species. Um, we do um, certainly feed things like nuts and seeds, but we just need to be careful about how much they're getting because they tend to overeat those things. They taste really good. They're higher in fat and, and nutri nutritionally deficient in many different things. And so I think that the key is doing variety and balance. It's just that keeping in mind that parrots can be like three-year-olds and they're going to pick out the French fries. And so it's up to us to make sure that what they are eating is healthy, um, you know, with vegetables, they're eating the dark leafy greens, they're eating the orange and yellow vegetables, um, you know, the higher beta carotene type things. Um, but in a, in a pinch, if, if we're in a rush and I'm speaking for myself as well, um, is, uh, I, if I don't have time to cut up veggies every day, then relying on the pellets as the base and most for, as a general rule, most citizens, if, if I can get them on about 60% pellets, I don't tend to worry as much about the deficiencies that we see when they're eating primarily seeds. And, you know, they love sunflowers, but a sunflower and peanut diet is not, good <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no that's fine <laughs>
<laughs> so back to um, Scrimmage Cell Carcinoma and even other skin masses. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you approach those, particularly in regards to whether you use body maps? Yeah, and actually, for anybody who um, who is interested, there is um, in the. Um, I'm just looking on my shelf right now, so I can say the right. It's the. Um, Brian Spear, avian medicine textbook. Um, oh, here it is over here. Um, Current therapy in avian medicine and surgery. Um, Brian Spear, um, published by Elsevier. There is an oncology chapter in there that a group of us put together. And that really is, at this point, the most complete reference um, for oncology in avian species. And it has information on body mapping in there with a diagram that can be used, as well as a quality of life table and a lot of other things that could be used as sort of a guideline for people. Um, but yeah, I do think the body map is helpful. And in, and in part, it, well, you know, people's memories tend to fade, but then also if you're transferring cases between veterinarians, knowing exact location, character of lesion, measurements, all of those are going to be very important in terms of assessing response or if things are recurring. And so being very precise about that, just like we would in um, other species, is going to be important. Okay. And can you talk about um, how you stage birds? I know that birds don't have lymph nodes and other differences, um, but are there any major differences that you see with um, staging uh, these types of tumors compared to uh, mammals? Oh, gosh, it can be so tricky because when we're talking about, you know, uh, budgies with your pigeal gland tumors, you know, you've got a 30 gram animal and realistically, you cannot do the degree of staging that you would in mammals. And, and again, yeah, without the lymph nodes, it makes it more difficult. I would say in these cases, imaging can be helpful. Um, things like ultrasound are much more challenging for species that have air sacs. You've got a lot of interference with things. So even trying to evaluate via ultrasound is very different. I would say that that if you have um, uh, an animal, you know, a large enough bird, uh, things like endoscopy are helpful because then you can go in and get a visual look at the organ and you can sample the organ. There are cases, especially if we're dealing with um, uh, coanal types of lesions. We tend to do a lot in the way of CT scans because they can be done fairly quickly and we can get an idea, is there bony involvement? Um, so a lot of times those sorts of imaging may be helpful, but realistically, um, we are, I would have to say there are cases where we're just guessing at the staging mm -hmm. just because of the small size of the bird. We can't even sometimes get more than enough blood to do, you know, a CBC on these cases. Uh, so it's really difficult. I would say we're doing a lot less staging comparatively when we're dealing with very small birds. Sure. And following on from that, what's your treatment approach to uh, squamous cell carcinomas? And, and I do understand that location is going to be a big determinant of what you do. Yeah, and I would say I've I've had quite a few cases, and I've managed them um, in different ways. Uh, for example, I had an Amazon parrot that had a, a pedunculated neck mass that ended up being a squamous cell carcinoma, and that was one that we did surgery on multiple times. Um, we did radiation. It wasn't particularly radiation responsive. We did intralesional. After surgery, we did intralesional chemotherapy and radiation and finally resolved that case, but that is one of the rare cases where we were able to resolve it without complete surgical excision. And recently, um, ESCRA, which I think we'll talk a little bit more about them hopefully later, mm. um, but with the um, Exotic Species Cancer, Cancer Research Alliance, they did com 
compile a bunch of data in terms of squamous cell carcinoma in birds, treatment options and outcome, and really what it comes down to is surgical excision. If you can surgically excise it, you can cure it. Otherwise, it's very unlikely. And so our best approach is aggressive surgical excision, if that's possible. And yes, it's true that depending on the location, we may be limited. If you're dealing with um, your pigeal gland issues, sometimes you know, people may be doing more aggressive things like tail amputation. Um, when we're dealing with things within the sinuses, it's much more complicated. Um, and also things that are complicated, uh, the fact that, you know, squames don't respond all that well to things like radiation. Sometimes we're doing that, but, but keeping in mind that even the types of radiation protocols we're delivering, the birds don't send out tend to have the same cellular response. When birds are irradiated in the sinuses, for example, we suspect that there's problems, especially with the air within the sinuses. We're not getting the dose delivered to the site of the lesion that we would calculate that would work out with nasal tumors in dogs and cats, for example. So those are the sorts of things that may complicate it. Um, but the short answer to that is cut it out if you can. Hmm. So if squames don't respond that well to radiation, how does that factor in with the potential side effects that you may see with these therapies? Well, that's actually the trouble is there's not. And so the part of the, the research, there hasn't been a lot of research done, but the research that has been done suggests that they're not um, very radiation sensitive. And we suspect that they probably require much higher doses than dogs and cats do. We don't tend to see the same side effects um, on a cellular level with radiation treatments in birds. And so really... Um, a lot of the, the changes we may be worried about in dogs and cats, quite honestly, I'm, I'm not seeing them to that extent in birds. And so if anything, I would say we tend to see a little bit less. Now, when we're talking about systemic chemotherapy, it can be more challenging in part because we don't know pharmacokinetic and dynamic data on, we, we do know on more of the, the platinum compounds, but a lot of these, we don't really know how the animal is going to respond. And so it's, it's tricky when we're talking about systemic chemotherapy, especially in particularly small patients. And so really I'm monitoring them on an individual basis because there's really no, um, you know, standard across all the patients. And so we're really monitoring them individually, but especially with things like squamous cell carcinoma, they don't tend to be the types of tumors that respond well to systemic chemo. If anything, we may be doing intralesional chemotherapy. And in that situation, there's a lot of different ways that we can try to localize the effects. So for example, um, there's recipes for doing sesame oil um, mixtures with the chemotherapeutic to try to keep it delivered locally. We may just be injecting at the, the tumor site. Um, and sometimes we can do things like strontium therapy. Um, so being able to treat very locally can be helpful, but they tend to be quite tricky neoplasms to cure. Again, without being able to surgically excise, a lot of times we're revisiting um, treatments because we're not curing them when we're just treating uh, locally like that. Thanks for that. I was just wondering... Um, if you could elaborate a little bit on how you assess quality of life in these patients and, you know, where do you draw the line, particularly in birds where they are prey species in many cases. 
Well, it is true with the prey species, they hide their signs of illness. And a lot of times owners don't realize how sick the animal is until they're they're quite sick, because once they start showing signs, usually they're, they're fairly severely affected. Um, the same sort of ways that we may do uh, a quality of life evaluation in dogs and cats. And um, in, the, in the chapter I mentioned, there is a whole list of questions that's quite extensive in terms of evaluating quality of life. Um, but, but, you know, really looking at the behaviors of the bird and appetite. What I find a lot is when animals are not feeling well, their appetite drops and their weight drops. And so if I do have a bird that I'm um, treating more aggressively, I have owners get a gram scale that weighs in one gram increments and monitor the weight of that bird. And if we're trending down in weight, that's usually a sign that, that the quality of life is deteriorating. And I feel like really the, the body weight may be one of the most sensitive ways we can monitor in addition to the animal's behavior. And if they're enjoying the same sorts of things they enjoyed, what's their activity level? Um, how are they interacting with the owner? If they're just sitting up fluffed, you know, in the corner, then that's going to be concerning for us. I just want to take my next segue and actually talk a little bit more about radiation therapy, which you already touched upon um, just when you were talking about squamous cell carcinoma. So I, I did want to talk about it in the context of rabbit thymomas. I wouldn't say they're very common, but it's certainly something that a lot of vets have seen in practice. So can you tell us a little bit about first about what radiation therapy involves? Yeah. Um, and so interestingly, you mentioned about thymomas. One thing I would just as an aside mention is for veterinarians that are seeing rabbits that present, um, you know, especially on emergency with GI presentations, which is really common, I encourage trying to get whole body radiographs. So many times we focus on the abdomen, we don't get the thorax, and we completely miss the thymoma that's there. And we have had many cases where a rabbit presents with some other presentation, and it's not always the classic dyspnea, exophthalmic, um, rabbit that will present with a thymoma. Sometimes they present with GI signs. And so the first off, you have to catch it before you can treat it. And so I would say, just make sure you're always looking at that cranial mediastinal region and keeping in mind that uh, really taking that radiograph when that patient comes in may be the only way that you're going to catch it initially. Um, when we do see the, the lesion there, um, then certainly talking with owners about different ways that we can approach. And again, it, it does come down to age and concurrent disease when we're talking about things like that. So um, let's see, I'll say from, from the initial, just a little bit more about the thymomas. When we see this sort of mass effect differentiating, could there be cardiomegaly? Could there be concurrent heart disease? A lot of times these masses will compress the heart and that can potentially cause compromise. Um, we do tend to see some cases that will develop pleural effusion. And if we've got things like that going on, we have to take that into consideration if we're talking about repeat anesthesia for things like radiation therapy. Sometimes we have to get the patient more stable before we can even talk about going down that road. So we may need to remove some fluid from the chest, for example. And also don't jump to the conclusion of thymoma without getting a definitive diagnosis. And so typically for these cases with a mediastinal mass, we will try to get a thoracic ultrasound and sample the mass. Oftentimes with cytology, we can get a little bit better idea. Um, but I have had some cases that have surprised me. So for example, I did have a case that ended up having a tapeworm cyst um, in the oh, chest. Wow. And it was, I was just like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Um, we had a case that the tapeworm cyst had also had a thymoma. We've seen quite a few cases that have pulmonary abscesses, and they may give the impression of a thymoma. 
but it may not be a thymoma. So before you even think about going down the road of treatment, we need to confirm that that's what we're actually dealing with since there's other things that could be going on. Um, the other thing I talked to owners about before going down the road of radiation is evaluating for concurrent disease. And I would say the one that particularly tends to rear its ugly head is um, encephalodozoan caniculi. So for those rabbits where we suspect disease like E. caniculi, those are cases where we may want to make sure that that disease is stable before we're doing other things that could potentially immunosuppress that patient. Um, because then other diseases may flare up and um, and I would say across the board, I, I do prefer radiation therapy over surgery. In these cases, um, rabbits have such a small thorax. Um, doing thoracotomy is just, in my mind, it's just not an option, really. Unless there was some extenuating circumstance, with them being prey species, really the chances of morbidity and mortality are so high. And I really feel like in terms of the best interest for the patients, I do lean towards radiation therapy. Um, it depends on the, the case. I would say ballpark for us when we're treating these thymoma cases, probably around $2,500 if I'm giving an estimate to an owner for radiation um, once we um, have our diagnosis. And so that's not feasible for all owners to do. So I'm very upfront about the cost. But I would say in terms of tolerating, I do, I do feel like most of the time, um, rabbits tolerate that quite well. And it does require repeat sedation, depending on the protocol that's used. There have been protocols where the cases may get higher fractions per treatment for only three treatments. Um, so a 0, 7, 21 days may be what some people use. Um, I tend to use a lower fraction, so we may just be doing um, three grays per treatment and doing treating twice weekly. So we tend to space it out over a five-week course, and we're treating them twice a week. I feel like um, clinically, because I've I've been at facilities that did both protocols, and I feel like in terms of tolerating the radiation, I do feel like going with the lower fractions per treatment tends to result in less in the way of side effects. But always talking to owners about the potential for long-term complications because with repeat radiation, we could worry about things like pulmonary fibrosis, changes to the heart. And so as we're going through our treatment, having the initial diagnostics and and we're we're not doing treatment without having a CT because we integrate uh, the CT with the radiation in terms of calculating out where we're treating and doses. Um, halfway through the treatment protocol, we repeat the CT or at least have some um, planning films because the mass the masses tend to be so radiation responsive. Once you're midway through treatment, the mass has changed significantly in size. Generally, it's quite smaller. So you need to reduce your field. And so trying to reduce the um, potential for side effects is we can minimize that by reducing our field along with the tumor. And so monitoring along the road is going to be helpful. So we typically will do that in terms of uh, gauging um, their response. Um, the other thing I talk to owners about is we're not curing them. So when we're doing things like radiation, we are, that is a palliative treatment. We're typically going to shrink down the tumor for a period of time, but they will have um, generally recurrence. So sometimes it depends on the age of the rabbit. These are slow growing tumors. And so oftentimes if we have, you know, a couple of years where that patient may not need any sort of treatment, I think that can be very worthwhile in those cases. Um, we can manage them for a, for a longer period of time. There are some um, practitioners I know that don't do radiation therapy at all. They just do, um, they'll treat them with uh, prednisolone. 
One thing I would caution about that is rabbits do tend to be more sensitive to the effects of steroids than other species. And we can see shrinkage of that mass with things like steroids. Uh, but if there is underlying issue, you know, if there is E. caniculi, that's been one of the, the experimental ways to um, escalate disease is to immunosuppress those patients. And so we are working against um you know, the potential for side effects. And I have seen rabbits, um, because we have followed these cases out, if we have cases where the owners are not able to go down the road of radiation, um, one of the things I would say is if you are considering things like prednisone, delay the treatment until the patient is more symptomatic. So if you if you have them early on in the diagnosis and they're not dysnic, if the mass isn't that big, don't start treatment until they become more clinically affected because you've got a finite amount of time. You can manage them with that drug without side effects. And I, I did have a case in a rabbit that we documented um, steroid hepatopathy resulting in the death of the rabbit within six months of starting the drug. And so I do know people who say they have rabbits on steroids for a couple of years without problem, and you certainly can, but the potential for side effects, um, I do feel like we're, we have a limited window. And so I, they do tolerate, in, in my experience, radiation better than um, things like steroids. What sort of survival rates are you seeing with radiation therapy? Um, well, it's interesting you mentioned that. Up until recently, I had not even had a single case that died <laughs> from the radiation, oh, wow. you know, directly from radiation. So I would say very good. If you have a very large tumor and you have an acute tumor necrosis that happens, those cases are not going to do well. Um, if they have concurrent issues like pleural effusion, I don't think they tend to do well. There was one study that looked at, um, I believe it was 19 rabbits that were treated with radiation, and they looked at... Um, Basically, uh, rabbits within a certain weight limit didn't do as well. Um, the, the thing about that study that is a little bit challenging is that a variety of different protocols were used, so it's hard to compare across the board. And again, I would say my clinical experience, I think the potential for complications is higher when you're treating with higher doses at once. And I think it just makes sense that there's more potential for, for an acute necrosis situation to happen. But other than one one recent case that we had that died, um, I have, I don't know how many cases I've treated at this point. Um, probably close to f at least thirty. I I don't really know, but I I would tell you that up until that one case, I never had a case that died during the radiation treatment. So I feel, in my experience, it is a it's very well tolerated. Wow, that's really good. It is a little different because based on the study that was published. I feel that reading that, you, you would be a little bit more hesitant because they did have some deaths in those cases. And and again, it's it's very hard to predict. Maybe I've just been lucky with my cases. Um, but I would say don't shy away from recommending that. If you don't have the ability to to um, provide that, at least if there is a referral place that would be you know relatively close by that would be willing to offer that, it is something that uh, I, I do feel like is a, is a good option for a lot of these cases. The other thing that I find that I shy away with, and I, I don't know about other vets, but just using prednisolone um, in rabbits. There, there's a veterinarian on the West Coast, and I, I keep telling him, you need to publish this. But he, he said, oh, I never do radiation. I have treated every case with pred. They do great. They often survive two years. So anecdotally, uh, I would say that there there are people that, ha that are able to maintain them longer term, but I would say that, you know, we do have documented cases of dead rabbits within, 
you know, six months from the steroids. So you have to be, and I've even just from topical steroids in rabbits too, uh, they, they are quite sensitive. So I, I do not use them unless I absolutely have to. Are there any adjunct treatments that you use um, in combination with your radiation therapy? Well, um, a lot of times I will use non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, um, in particular things like meloxicam, especially when we're treating them in the um, in the early stages. There is a lot of inflammation that results, and so we may have them on um, anti-inflammatories the whole time, or we may have them, especially around the treatment time, treating them with a non-steroidal, and I do think that helps a lot. Um, nutrition is important, and we have to keep in mind that these rabbits are, are dysnic, they're obligate nasal breathers, and so by nature of this disease, they do have decreased food intake. And so one of the things that's important is nutritionally supporting them. And we, we may try to give them supplemental um, syringe feeding, for example, to increase, to maximize their caloric intake. Um, but I would say minimally, I'm really not doing a lot in the way of other concurrent therapies. In some rare instances, depending on what type of, of tumor we're dealing with, especially if it's more um, lymphocytic, we may consider other types of chemotherapeutic um, we've used LSPAR in a couple of cases, um, but for the most part, the average case we're treating with radiation, just general supportive care um, and and really not much else other than a non-steroidal. Okay. And um, for those cases that do come in with dyspnea and they're you know, really struggling, is it a case of rushing the radiation therapy or you, do you sort of go along the lines of trying to support them first and then get them stable before you... Um, do radiation therapy. Yeah, yeah, it's a catch-22 because a, a dysnic rabbit is not long for the world. I would say there are situations where rabbits, um, they are quite prone to rhinitis. And so if you've got rhinitis on top of dyspnea from thymoma, that's not a good combination. And I have seen several situations where rabbits may have underlying issues like pastorolosis or some sort of um, respiratory disease. I do try to get that stable first. And so especially if I'm worried about an infectious process and a rhinitis, I will treat those rabbits with antibiotics, potentially nebulization, oxygen therapy, um, um, those sorts of things before we will go down the road of radiation. But but these are situations where I do feel like getting them to radiation therapy sooner is the best option because you do get such a, such a response very, so even within a couple of weeks, dramatic decrease in size, of the mass and you're relieving that animal's distress. So these are cases I, I tend to try to get to radiation more quickly. And in your experience, after doing those initial, that initial radiation therapy course, do you revisit that you know further down the track depending on how they're presenting? Yeah. So after the treatment, we'll typically be monitoring um, radiographically to evaluate the mass. And, and sometimes I'll have veterinarians, uh, you know, initially we may be checking every month, um, every three months, for sure every six months, but monitoring radiographically uh, you may be able to see changes before you see clinical signs in that patient. There are patients that we have retreated down the road with radiation again, keeping in mind that the more treatments, uh, the more potential there there is for side effects and things like pulmonary fibrosis, for example. Um, so again, when I'm when I'm managing these cases, when the when the mass is small, I tend to be a lot more conservative um, as they become more clinically affected. That would be when I would be more inclined to retreat. So I wouldn't rush to retreat um, unless the patient's quality of life is being impacted. 
Thanks for that. That's really interesting. Now, I did want to discuss um, a little bit about the Exotic Species Cancer Research Alliance, which you mentioned earlier. Um, just for people that don't know, I, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what that alliance is trying to do and how you're involved in that. Yeah. Um, so with this alliance, um, one of the founding members, um, Dr. Ashley Zender, um, did her residency um, with exotic species, and she has a specific interest in cancer and cancer research. And she's working at Stanford. And one of the one of her interests is comparing across species um, different types of cancers. Um, and one of the you know the the things that really struck us was. The, the fact that, you know, humans get cancers, these animals get the same sorts of cancers. And a lot of times the treatments that are used in humans originate from information in animals anyway. And so there's a lot of interest from the standpoint of what happens across species and what could work in some animals, you know, or a human could it work in other species. Um, one of the biggest struggles we have with our exotic species and oncology is the fact that we don't have information, as I was mentioning, beyond case reports. There's not survival data. We can't say this treatment, they live this long, that treatment, that long. So one of the, the main goals is to try to establish a database where people can go for information on particular types of tumors in particular types of species, um, what treatment outcomes have been. And so to keep a centralized database and veterinarians, as they're seeing these cases can enter information on that case all the way out through outcome when the patient dies, you know, necropsy findings, that sort of thing. And it's a way to streamline the, the process and make sure that there's a centralized location where we can compile this information. And one of the first things that uh, that they did was look at squamous cell carcinoma in birds. And they, they did a push to get veterinarians to enter info on cases. And from that, they were able to get a lot more meaningful information than looking at like, you know, the seven case reports or whatever. Um, and so I feel like that's a really key area with just getting the data. That's really the way that we're going to move forward with this is having a way to um, see what types of things have been done. And really, the exotic species are so different. You know, if you think about things like reptiles, for example, metabolically, things happen so much more slowly. And so, of course, different types of treatments and responses will be very different in an animal that has such a different um, metabolism and versus a bird who, you know, potentially things would happen much more quickly than you would see in a mammalian species. And so just that, that ability is important. Also working with researchers at key institutions that are able to um, potentially have subsidized funding for oncology treatments in patients that may be newer, um, trying to um, do certain work with uh, cancer cell lines and looking at different responses to therapy. Really, it's, it's just the way that we can start to approach the same level of care that is that is already there for dogs and cats and we're really behind with exotics but with this um with this organization i feel like we're moving forward much more rapidly than we otherwise than it would be possible to do do you know if every you know any veterinarian can submit cases or is it, are there only you know specific specialists that are allowed to sort of submit their cases to this database any anybody can um it's well it's it's preferential for veterinarians to to do this just because they'll have all the information but any veterinarian can it's escra.org but just looking up exotic species cancer research alliance takes you to the website and then there's drop down menu so you can see how to how to go through that process and who to contact with questions and also just 
as a complete aside, if if people want to donate to the endeavor, they they are trying to get a, a fundraiser to try to work on this database collection. Okay, I will put all the you know the notes, the links, and everything on you know the web page and things like that. So everyone, um, you know, especially all the you know books and things and resources that we've already talked about, they will be all on there. Now to wrap it up, I've got four questions that are a bit more generalized. So if we can just start with the first one, um, and that is. What book do you most recommend vets to read? And it doesn't have to be a vet book, but yes. Uh, the one that I think everyone should read is called Being Mortal. Um, I believe that's Atul Gawande. And this really goes, it's really more from the human side of things and aging. And really, I think it gets to the root of the issue that we deal with, whether it be human medicine or veterinary medicine. And again, it kind of comes down to just because we can treat, should we? And looking at things from a more holistic sort of standpoint, and we can't just focus on the cancer. There, we're working with an individual, you know, emotions, all these other things we have to take into consideration. And it's just a very insightful book that I think gives us um, time to step back and look at the bigger picture of life and what we're here for. Okay. Now, that sounds really interesting. Now, the next one is, if you could travel back in time and give one piece of advice to yourself when you were a recent graduate, what would that be and why? Uh, I think it would be chill out. <laughs> so um, so many of us in this veterinary profession are type A overachievers, and you can't maintain type A overachiever indefinitely. And so there needs to be a balance. And I think it's easy when you're earlier on, you know, especially when you're in vet school, earlier on in your career, you try to do everything and be everything. And you can't and you need to preserve your, you know, your mental well being. And for me, it was, you know, now one of the things that helps me a lot is is running, it, it really is great. If I would have started that earlier, and focused on this stuff earlier, that's what I would tell myself and to go out fishing more, I really enjoyed fishing. And I didn't realize that until I basically like had to figure out what to do besides just work to to have a balance. No, that's 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 really good. And now, if you could if you could send one text to um, every vet in the world, what would it be and why? Well, actually, it's along the same sort of lines. You must preserve your mental health, <laughs> and you have to fill your wellness balloons. If you cannot be happy, if you cannot be well yourself, you can't help others. So take care of yourself. Now, I really like that. It's very similar, actually, to the person I interviewed before you, Molly Varga. Very much, she had the same message at the end. Um, you know, it's all because because of the fact that we are, so many of us are type A people um, who are just, mm -hmm. you know, suckers for doing lots of work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Now, for people that would like to find out more about you and your work, I don't know if you have any, you know, anywhere they could go, you know, find more information. Uh, yeah, just looking at the um, Tufts Veterinary School, looking at the website, they have links for um, different areas, but I'm on there with the um, exotic service. And so from a standpoint of like a faculty profile and then what the service is doing, there's some information there. So that's a great place to check out if you want to know more specifics on some of the things I'm working on. Great. Um, I'd just like to say thank you for being able to, you know, take the time to have a talk with me today. Um, I realize how busy every specialist is. Um, so, but thank you so much for this. Well, and I, I would say thank you so much for getting the information out there. And I think 
um, just having veterinarians know different resources and how they can help out is huge. And it'll be the way that we move this, uh, the area forward. I know we focused a lot on oncology, but really that's the way that we're going to move this forward is getting all of us to put all of our heads together, all of our cases together. Um, and then we can really make a difference for these patients. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I just have a few things to say. Firstly, if you have any feedback for the podcast or any recommendations on how we can improve it, or if you know any potential guest speakers you think would be great on the podcast, please post a comment on iTunes or Stitcher or go to our website at inquisivet.com. That's I-N-Q-U-I-S-I-V-E-T.com. I also need to quickly go through our disclaimer with you. So the Inquisivet podcast is brought to you by Barvest Proprietary Limited. Our podcast publication is for general information purposes only and do not take into account your specific needs, objectives or circumstances. Content is based on the professional opinions of individual doctors and other healthcare professionals who have contributed their content. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests or contributors and are not necessarily those of Barvets. Barvets is not responsible for errors or for opinions expressed in this podcast. By listening and downloading our podcast, you agree not to use our content as medical device to treat any medical condition in animals, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Barvets expressly disclaim any warranties or guarantees expressed or implied and shall not be liable for damages of any kind in connection with the material, information, techniques or procedures set forth in this podcast. This disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you later. Bye.